Let me pray for us. I'm going to read from uh, Psalm 12 and verse 6, a little verse that struck me this week. Um, let me read from that and then pray for us. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Lord, we thank you that your, your word is pure and your word is perfect. And we pray as we... And kick off this new series uh, in January, thinking through money, thinking through stewardship, thinking through all the things that we have and how we use them well. Pray that you would speak to us this morning. As we reflect on you and your character, we pray that we might love you all the more and that you might shape us by your spirit. Amen. I think one of them. Um, one of Satan's most successful tactics in the scriptures and maybe in our lives is to sow seeds of doubt in us, to make us question whether God wants the best for you, whether he is good, kind, generous, whether you can trust him, whether life with him is indeed full of joy or whether he is a killjoy, whether he sucks the life out of life. And you see it in Genesis 3, as Fumi read for us, I think it sets the tone for the rest of reality. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Or he continues, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Do you hear the kind of insinuations behind the question? Do you recognise them in your own life? Does God really want the best for you? Or does he want to put you in your place? Does he want to teach you something harsh? Is he really good? Does he really know the best way for you to live in your situation? Can you trust him? Do you go your way? Do you go his way? No, no, you just, you do you. You define things as you want to do them. You, you know best. Come on. That little voice inside us, can we trust God? And yet one of the things we're going to be focusing on this morning in this little mini January series, as I said, on money and stewardship, the thing I want us to grasp this morning, one thing, and then you can drift off, one thing is God is extraordinarily generous. Our God is extraordinarily generous. And it's my contention for you this morning that it is right there through the scriptures. You see it in the story of the Bible, the really big things, the big meta-narrative, the overarching reality of life. And you see it in the little things. Maybe you'll have known it in your own lives, day-to-day -day minutiae, the, the tiny details. The unfolding story of God in the Bible is an unfolding story of generosity from start to end. So there's one contention. The other contention is it is the ongoing work of Satan to sow those seeds of doubt in us, that we don't believe that God is generous. Or maybe even it is the old self within us, struggling to trust our Father. Many of us wrestle with this idea of the generosity of God. Rather than thinking of his generosity, it's as if he's kind of lurking there, waiting for us to slip up. Looking to make life hard. He's, he's distanced and he's a bit disappointed. And he just keeps you going on crusts of bread and cups of water. Before we jump into the idea of generosity, though, just a little bit on the what and the why of this series. So firstly, the what, big picture. What are we going to be doing for the next three weeks? 
Today, our idea is God is generous. He is the ultimate giver. Next week, we're going to think about the idea that the things that he gives us, the gifts that he bestows upon us, can pull upon our hearts, and our hearts get entangled with them. So the things that he gives us begin to be the things that we, we trust in, the things that we follow, the things that we run after, the things that we find life in. That's week two. Week three, then, is just thinking a bit about wisdom in stewardship, what it means to live well with the things that he gives. So number one, our God is generous. Number two, our hearts can wander. Number three, our need for wisdom. Those are the next three weeks. That's the what. Now, the why. Why do something on money? Globally, of course, economies are a mess at the moment. Money is hard. So there's a sense in which we need to think carefully because of the bigger context that we find ourselves in. But I want to say that there is no particular issue for us as a church at this point. These sermons aren't going to end up in a big kind of gift day giving drive and we're going to lock the doors and not let you leave until you hand over your credit cards. But that's the point, isn't it? When there's lots of heat... There's not very much light sometimes. When when money is really, really tight or really, really complicated or we suddenly realise that we're really, really short and it's crisis time, then our, our thinking can get muddled and our understanding of what stewardship looks like can be distorted. So we thought now would be a good time to kind of press pause, partly because of the global economy, but also because there's not a huge significant issue now for us. Because the other thing that matters, so the other reason to think about money is that the Bible is very clear that how we relate to money and think about money and steward our money and our stuff really matters. It's a key part of discipleship. Martin Luther apparently put it, when someone follows Jesus, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart and of the mind and of the purse or the wallet or your Apple Pay or however we pay for things now. This stuff really matters. So today, though, we're thinking about God's generosity. And I think, slightly tongue-in-cheek, if God had a love language, it would be gift-giving. That would be a big part of how he shows his love to his people. And there's loads and loads of things that we could say for this morning, but we're going to hang our our ideas on two big categories. Um, His generosity to us in creation, and his generosity to us in recreation. So in creation and in recreation. Firstly, his generosity to us in creation. And we've said this before at Morden Road, but in God's act of making the universe, it shows something about him. His creation reveals his character. The way that he creates, it shows what he is like. As Christians, we don't just believe that this world is a huge biological accident. We're not here by fluke or coincidence or chance. It not just happened to be 8 billion people on the third big rock from the sun, hurtling through space, rotating around the sun at about 1,000 miles an hour. It was just the right amount of atmosphere for us to breathe and survive, and it was just the right distance from the sun to support life, and just the right levels of gravity and various other variables that seemed just right to support life. Christian would say, the Bible would say, that we're not here as a mistake, as a chance. But actually, more than that, the creation that God has made isn't just dull and grey and drab 
There is colour and taste and variety and beauty and love. And So I wonder what it is for you that makes your pulse race or takes your breath away. Think of the natural world and just work through a year with me. Maybe for you it's the hopeful spring sprouting of a snowdrop or a crocus or a daffodil. Glimpses of colour at the end of a long darkness. The promise of life, the promise of more to come. Maybe it's warm evenings and summertime sunsets sat by the sea with someone you love. Maybe it's the rich colours of autumn. Think a tapestry of brown and orange and yellow and red and, and even pink. Think of the um, centre of town, Christchurch. Think the Virginia creeper, the deep red in the early autumn. Think the skeletal winter trees. The leafless landscape, the snow arrives and the fields are covered in white. You're the first person out and the frost is, is underground and you see your breath, the muffled sounds of silence and there's just a moment of wow. Well, you climb to the top of a mountain and you look out and the panorama in front of you, it just takes your breath away. Or, or that piece of music for you. The violin solo, the, the beat just dropping at that moment. Or it's the hot chocolate and a panorama. Or it's the smell of jasmine flowers on an early autumn evening. Or it's a perfectly layered lasagna. Or it's the deep satisfaction of a job well done. Or it's the depth of a rich Rioja. Or a tang of an IPA. Or it's the look into the eyes of someone who loves you and knows you and accepts you. Fordham Road, our God is not a stingy God. He has not made a boring, grey, drab, dull world that is purely functional, that is purely utilitarian, but rather he's a God who shows generosity. In so many ways, a world of taste and touch and beauty and goodness. A world that we get to enjoy and experience. A world where we have senses to experience those things. And you know, Jesus made them. That's not just fluke. And it's right that we linger there this morning because churches like ours, functionally at least, can have quite a low view of these ideas sometimes. We rightly get excited by words like redemption and rescue and we, we sing about the cross and about sins dealt with and about cleansing and forgiveness and, and we're meant to get excited about those things. But sometimes that means we end up underplaying creation, the goodness of creation, the importance of creation. But ours is a generous God, the Bible says. Indeed, generous to all the earth, pouring down common grace on all, those who know him and acknowledge him and those who don't. For example, Paul would say that God in Acts 14 would say that God has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Or Jesus would say that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Or even that our God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Our God is generous, generous to all. He gives his world what it doesn't deserve and indeed he doesn't give his world what it does deserve. It's messy and it's broken and it's bruised and it hurts. And there are thorns and there are thistles and there are tears. But actually evil is restrained. Sin doesn't work its way out in the way that it could. 
So his generosity in creation, first point. But also then, secondly, his generosity in recreation, because thankfully the Bible doesn't end at Genesis 3. It doesn't end with man and woman saying, no thank you, we'll do this alone. We'll go without you, thanks. In fact, his generosity is that he makes promises that he will restore and indeed improve upon that initial creation. He will pour out grace upon grace upon grace. He will make a promise to Eve first that one from her line will come and defeat Satan. And then he will clothe Adam and Eve in animal skins to cover their shame. But then just fast forward button nine chapters later and he makes a promise. He generously makes a promise to a man called Abraham that he will bless him and his family with a family, with a land, and that they will be a blessing to the whole earth. And he makes a covenant with him, a generous promise. Our God is generous. And then fast forward the button again and we get to the at the end of uh, Genesis, or the start of Exodus, and they are on their way to the land, but it's all gone wrong. There are loads and loads and loads of people, but they're in the wrong place. And so he will generously rescue them. He shows his power in rescuing his people. He gives them freedom and food and water, and they leave. And, and then more than that, for a people who were in slavery and now out of slavery, and traumatised and destitute and disorganised and powerless, and fractured culture, he gives them in his generosity, he gives them the law. Good rules for living. Rules that reflect him and reflect his character in so many ways. And you press the fast forward button again and we're on the edge of the promised land. And the spies return, they say, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Deuteronomy 1. And after all he had done for them, after all he had given them, and all his generosity, did Israel rejoice at the possibility of going into this land? No. No, it wasn't rejoicing, it was rejection. Refusal. Not trusting him, but again, history almost repeating itself, just like in the garden. Is God good? Can we trust his promises? Is his way the best way for us? Does he really want the best for us? And his generosity in the land. God's people again turning against their generous lords. Fast forward, there'll be a palace and there'll be a temple. There'll be generations who'll be born there and there'll be peace and there'll be prosperity and there'll be blessing. Why? Because our God is generous and patient. Lavish generosity and his patience with his people who make the same mistakes again and again and again. And this story really matters because if you chop the Bible anywhere, like a stick of rock, at the heart of it, wherever you slice it, I think you will see that God is generous. It's not that he starts off generous at the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, and then he gets a bit angry and he's stingy for most of the Old Testament. Then you end up in Malachi and he kind of thaws out of it and, ah, okay, and he gets back into the swing of generosity again. But actually right the way through, wherever you chop it, our God is generous. The story of Abraham, the story of Moses, the story of Joshua, the story of David, again and again he's generous. And it matters because we see something of what our God is like. But more than that, it matters too because it shows something of what he will do. And it points us ahead to Christ. The biggest story of generosity, one who would come and he would, what would he do? He would rescue his people from slavery. He would give them a law to live by. He would get his people into the land of promise. And indeed, more than that, he would give himself that he might do that. That he might give his people new hearts 
that he might give his people the Spirit. And so we see his generosity in the work of recreation. And so it shouldn't surprise us, you think of Jesus in the Gospels, and what do you see? You see a man of generosity. Think of John chapter 2. Jesus changing water into wine. And it wasn't, it wasn't a cheap kind of house red that he provided, it seems. It wasn't ordinary, it wasn't limited. No, it seems to be the finest wine of the whole wedding party. Why would you do that? It's the end of the celebration that seems many of the guests would have been none the wiser. And yet we get a glimpse of the generosity of our God. Or we fast forward again and he's feeding 5,000 people, hungry people. And it's not simply that from a sort of measly packed lunch he does a bit of something clever and everyone gets a couple of crumbs. No, there were basket loads of leftovers. This was a ministry of celebration and generosity. Feasting. But of course, that is just small fry in one sense. Where do you see his generosity most of all, most extraordinarily, most beautifully? You see it in the story of salvation. He, he holds nothing back for his people. His generosity in his earthly ministry, the incarnation, never more than that. His generosity in his son dying for his people. Bringing freedom and redemption and forgiveness. Dying in our place. Totally undeserving us. Stained in sin and self and lacking generosity. And yet he generously gives himself for us. Pouring himself out. Pouring out his spirit for us as well so that we will be equipped and empowered and able to live. To live for him. He will guarantee our inheritance. He will guarantee Emmanuel, God with us. Our God is generous. And he provides what we need even now. As we seek to live for him, he says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. As Paul puts it to the church in Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The one who had everything gave up everything that we might have everything. Ours is not a stingy God. He is rich in creation and he is rich in recreation. And so I've got five little thoughts for you to chew on this week off the back of that. What we've done there really is just try and look at the whole big picture of the Bible and see God's generosity. And I guess most of us, or many of us, will be sort of nodding. Yeah. Some of us will be a bit confused. Okay. But five things for us to be chewing over, maybe in home groups, these are things that we can be talking about and praying about. Number one, I think these things don't always strike us because we are so often very entitled. And I say that to myself, so I say that to you. How would you feel if I told you naturally that you deserve nothing? In fact, you deserve more than nothing because of your rebellion. And you deserve justice. And yet very often we struggle to engage with this idea because in the West particularly we are so entitled. We have so much comfort. We have so many good things. We just kind of expect them. We expect to be handed them on a plate. But of course that is not the story of the Bible. And so I wonder, just chewing over this for myself, whether one of the reasons I am often not very thankful is because I have such an entitled mindset and I don't see all the good things that God gives me. 
Maybe there's a thing for this year. Maybe it is writing down two or three things a day that you are thankful for so that you begin to notice them and don't be quite so entitled. I wonder sometimes whether God actually, for our good, chips away at that by not providing things that we need. Reminds us that we're not entitled. Second one. In salvation, God gives us no less than himself. That is, we were made for relationship, not for stuff. Maybe we glanced or we glimpsed a bit more of that through the whole kind of COVID season. And we realised people matter more than things. Yet you see, God may be a giver. Giving gifts might be his love language. But actually, he gives us more than that. He gives us himself. Things are good, and our God is generous, and he loves to bless you. He loves to give you good things. But we were made for relationship. We were made for a relationship with him. He is not the distant sugar daddy who just sends you a check from a long way away and pops in once in a while back into your life. No, he comes and he gives you himself by his spirit. And yet so easily we do get caught up in the things, more on this next week, the things or the people or the relationships or the experiences and those are the things that we get kind of sucked into and think oh, that's what I need, that will complete me, that is the answer that is it, if only I had finish the sentence for you, if only I had but actually the only thing that will ultimately satisfy us, the Bible says the only thing is him because we were made for a relationship with him Third one, what you're willing to pay shows how much you love. So do you ever go onto Google after Christmas and you put your present into the internet to see how much that person likes you? No. Yes, you do. Maybe you're in a family, you're comparing presents with siblings, just trying to work out who's the favourite. And you Google the thing, whatever it is, and it can go one of two ways, can't it? It can either go, oh... It was in the sale. They, they don't care as much as I thought they did. I'm not so important. I'm not so special. And we say, oh, that's a thought that counts, but it's not always the case. Is it? So either it goes that way or it goes the other way. And you go, wow. Wow, you realise how much they spent on you, how much they care for you. And you weren't sure what they thought of you, but suddenly you realise by this gift that they have given you how much you are worth to them. And now you know. And so if we want to know how much we are worth to God, well, how much is he willing to pay for us? How much is he willing to give? And how much did it cost him? It cost him a cross. That's how much he loves you. Brothers and sisters, more than Road, he loves you. Because look how much he is willing to give for us. Fourth one, he doesn't necessarily give us what we want. That's hard, isn't it? Many in this room, like Nash or Oak, the overflows, will, will know something of the pain of unanswered prayer. Sometimes the Lord doesn't provide what we want, or the life doesn't go as we expected it to or wanted it to, and we think that because he's not answered my prayer, because of my months or, or years on my knees praying for this thing, then we can easily doubt his goodness. 
you can easily doubt that he cares. You can doubt his generosity. And so I talk about God being generous with the scriptures and you're like, yeah, but he's not giving me this. Whether it's a person or a thing or a job or an experience. Or... It seems to me often God doesn't give us what we want. Even if those are good things. But he does always give us what we need. He always provides what we need in life. And the fifth one, just at the end. It's okay to enjoy things. I shouldn't need to say this, but Christians can get so weird around stuff at times. Again, it can go one of two ways. <clears throat> and maybe both, maybe both ways for all of us, depending on how we're feeling at the time. But there are kind of large swathes of the church who see God's blessing only in kind of material, physical things that we see around us. And so in a sense, we end up very worldly, verging on a sort of sanctified version of the world, looking for posh cars or big houses or posh clothes or a love for or a lusting after prosperity almost. And yet it's just the prosperity of this world, which is not really prosperity at all. Money's not very much. It doesn't matter that much. So either we go that way or we go the other way and kind of a propensity towards sackcloth and ashes and it's wrong to ever enjoy good things that God gives us if he generously provides you with something it's oh my I can't I feel guilty or say oh I, I might drive this kind of a car but it was on sale or or you know these are brands but I got it from TK Maxx or whatever it is we we try and justify having nice stuff and yet sometimes the Lord gives us a present, a gift, because it shows something of his love towards us. And it's okay for us to enjoy it. Just as the person that you love, in love, gives you the gift that you long for, well, more on this in future weeks, but it's okay, Christian, for us to enjoy the thing that God gives us. It really is. Let's pray. But we thank you that you are generous. And we pray that this just wouldn't be an idea that we have or a theological box that we can tick. But actually it would shape us and shape our understanding of you. Thank you for the generosity that we've seen in you in creation. Thank you for the world that you have created in which we have the privilege of being a part of. Thank you for truth and love and beauty. Thank you for senses and taste. And thank you for thank you for the many blessings that you give us. Lord, we confess so often we miss them. We forget. And so we pray that you might open our eyes afresh to your generosity in, in creation, but also to your generosity in recreation as well. And I guess we confess... Again, we confess that we miss them. And so might you stir our hearts afresh that we might see again or grasp onto again the reality of your generosity in the Lord Jesus. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, his ascension for us. In his pouring out your spirit on us in answered prayers along the way, in one another in this room. 
Lord, we confess that so often we're entitled. And so our hearts do not see your generosity, and indeed our hearts are not generous. We thank you that you loved us enough to give us your son. Convince us, shape us, remould us that we might know your generosity afresh. In Jesus' name.